0: Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday people share real and personal stories of God's love and goodness. I'm your host, Robin, and I'm here with Katie and Lindy, and we are so excited we to be back. We are so
1: excited Yay! to finally be back. Yes,
0: um, We've missed you all. We've missed the podcast. We've missed stories. And as you know, we've spent the last 40 days in prayer and rest, and to, I mean, we needed it.
1: Yes. Don't we, we all need it? We do. We encourage well, all of you. Exactly. <laughs> well, especially just because we are a community of live gatherings and that's where our podcasts come from. Mm-hmm. And so, really, a couple of weeks ago, we were praying, okay, God, what is this going to look like for us this fall? And He answered in such a big way, didn't He, oh, Robin? Oh, it was huge. So,
0: literally, a few weeks ago, we honestly had no idea what we were going to do. And we have, because our stories come from live gatherings, We don't ever ask people to share their story. They come to us, and we are put in a position to say, you know, I think it's okay to ask around and to ask for stories and to choose stories outside of our cities and our communities. And so we are so excited about today's story because it came from a friend that
1: said, have y'all heard this couple? You need to hear their story. That's right, Robin. We have Nick and Cassie today sharing their story. They're from Ohio, and he was actually one of the first people to be diagnosed with COVID-19 back in March. He has a story that is unbelievable, unbelievable. and um, and I really think our listeners are just going to be encouraged by it. We called it It's a Good Day for a Miracle. You're going to yes. hear that said in their story, but um, especially during these times, we just wanted to bring you a story of hope and encouragement, and this is it.
0: This is, this is it. Even saying that title right now gives me chills. <laughs> yes. It makes me excited. So anyways, we know you're going to love Nick and Cassie's story. Here you go.
2: Before we begin today's episode, we want to remind you of our partnership with Neverthirst. Katie and Robin, you guys know that Neverthirst is a ministry that brings clean and living water to the unreached people groups in Asia and Africa. You know, it's hard to believe that over 785 million people still lack access to clean water, and Neverthirst wants to change that. Their model is to partner with local churches and pastors in those villages and communities to share the love of God through clean water. So go check them out at NeverThirstWater.org or follow their Instagram at NeverThirstWater. We are so
0: thankful for Never Thirst. And before we jump in today's story, we just want to let you know that Discover Your Story, which you may have seen us talking about all summer, is officially available. We're going to start shipping this Monday, August 17th. You can order your copy today at StorytellersLive.org. And we have some fun little promotions. If you order one, you get a free Storytellers Live sticker. If you order five, you get a Plan to Pray journal. If you want to check those out, it's Plan to Pray on Instagram. And then with 10 copies, you get free shipping. So we're really excited to announce this. And if you want to know more about it, this Monday, we're going to have a bonus episode podcast talking all about Discover Your Story. It's a great thing for this fall, a great Bible study you can do on Zoom. You can do it in very small groups if you feel comfortable. And so anyways, be on the lookout.
3: Well, hello, everybody. My name is Nick Brown. I'm a 38-year-old IT professional, and we live in a very, very rural area uh, in Ohio, Tuscarawas County. It's the northeastern part of Ohio. Uh, and this is my wife.
4: My name is Cassie Brown. I am a nurse, a wife, we have three kids, and we've lived here in this community pretty much our whole entire life.
3: So we're going to talk about uh, kind of what we dealt with uh, with the COVID-19 virus uh, over the last few months. And my story really starts clear back on March 6th. It was a Friday and it started out normal. I went to work that morning, um, had lunch with a couple salespeople, and then in the afternoon I decided I'd put in a full day and went home a little early actually. And so I got home and uh, no big issue. I started out with just a mild headache Um, and as the night progressed, I could feel a fever coming on. And so dealt with a headache and a fever pretty much all weekend. I just kind of treated it with Tylenol. Um, I'm a workaholic and so my normal reaction to stuff like that is take some Tylenol, get rid of the headache and keep chugging away. So that's what I did um, all the way through the weekend. Uh, Monday rolled around and I just still didn't feel real well, still had a really high temperature, even with the, uh, the, uh, Tylenol. And so having been married to a nurse, she said, you're not going to work with the fever. Um, so I, you know, heeded her warning. I stayed home Monday, um, no issues, just continued with the headache and the fever. And, and then Tuesday, um, that morning I just started to feel kind of lightheaded and I almost passed out Tuesday morning. Um, and so my, my wife, she had to go to work Tuesday and she called my parents and asked for them to come sit with me while I stayed at home from work just to kind of make sure nothing happened. And so that's what they did. They came over and they, they alternated uh, all day for eight hours um, until my wife got home from work. And uh, then Wednesday morning, March 11th, we woke up and I just still could not beat the fever and it's not normal to have a fever that long. Coupled with the fact that I almost passed out, I felt like I probably should get checked out by a professional. Um, and so we packed up and headed to our local stat care that morning and uh, got, got into stat care. And the nurse practitioner was actually somebody we knew. So we felt very comfortable. We went in and she started to, you know, ask me the normal history, medical history questions and what was going on, symptoms and things like that. Uh, she began to listen to me and then she says, you know, I really think you have pneumonia. So what I'll probably do is order a chest X-ray. We'll get you some steroids. We'll do an albuterol treatment and send you home. And so I was fine with that. I, you know, I'd never had pneumonia. I, actually, up until this point, I'd never even been hospitalized or any surgeries, nothing. Um, so, you know, this was all new for me. She, uh, she left the room uh, to, to kind of gather the supplies and write up the prescription for the X-ray. And in the meantime, the uh, physician's assistant came in and attached the nebulizer to me and started giving me the albuterol treatment. Uh, And I ended up passing out right there in the stat care. And so I woke up a couple minutes later and everybody's frantic. You know, they're running around calling 911 and they're throwing wet towels on me and smacking me, trying to get me to wake up. And uh, I finally come to and uh, the nurse practitioner tells me, you know, you just earned yourself a ride. They're on their way to get you, and they're gonna take you to uh, Cleveland Clinic Union Hospital, which lucky for us was only a few blocks away from Stack. So I kind of sat there for a few minutes and regained my composure, and uh, a few minutes later the, uh, the squad comes in, they put me on uh, the stretcher and load me up in the ambulance and take me to the hospital. Um, so we arrived at the hospital, Cleveland Clinic, uh, that, that morning, uh, just a few minutes after being at STAT care. And they started the normal testing you do when you get into an emergency room, you know, blood tests and temperature and all that stuff. And, um, they also thought that I might have pneumonia, so they went ahead and did a chest x-ray. And um, The chest x-ray came back inconclusive, so they decided to do a CT scan, which was new for me. So they rolled me into the CT scan room, um, and uh, you know, a few minutes later after the CT scan, I was back in the ER, and we were just kind of sitting there waiting. And then after, I would say, 20 30 minutes, um, we noticed some chaos started to erupt in the emergency room. Um, People were starting to put on gowns and goggles and face masks, and we both looked at each other and were like, Something big is going on.
4: Right? They came into our room.
3: Yeah, so you know, after all of this happens, we can see it through the glass doors. They open our door and come in, Um, and the emergency room doctor was like, You know. Uh, We think you may have pneumonia. However, your CT scan came back and showed that you have ground glass opacities, which we are seeing is an indication that you may have COVID-19. And so we're going to go ahead and admit you. And so that's what they did. They, you know, full isolation. Uh, They, uh, you know, I had to wear a mask in the hospital. They immediately took me into an isolation room and uh, I stayed there for quite some time. I was there for a couple of days, actually. Um, They had tested me in the emergency room for COVID-19, but at that time, the testing was starting to ramp up. And so um, they did not get the results back right away. So they were continuing with treating me as if I had pneumonia, but treating me like I had COVID-19. So it, it went fairly uneventful. I was in the isolation room for a couple of days there and, you know, watched some TV. I had my laptop with me.
4: So I did a little bit of work um, and and not really a a
3: major issue.
4: Um, Now, I will say this. Um, He was like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I was not going. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I was going, you explain to me why you think he has this. You explain to me like this. It was during that time, like, The governor in Ohio, who's doing a great job, honestly, like was ramping up a lot of things, starting to do the 2 p.m. calls. And I'm like, they caught the COVID crazy train. That is what has happened. My husband doesn't have COVID. Like they tested him for flu. It's going to take 48 hours to get the the normal results. So I'm like, let's get some other blood tests. Let's do these things. So then also dealing with the health department, because we were the first So while he is dealing with one portion of it, and we're still being told, we don't know if you have it. I'm dealing with the health department, trying to deal with the school systems because he works, you know, for IT and school systems. Um, I work nurse for Cleveland Clinic. So like I'm navigating all of these different things while he's, you know, just catching up on work. It's like a little vacation in the ICU room. He's trying to breathe. <laughs> he's trying to breathe a little bit. He's trying to breathe, but up until that point, like the one thing they kept saying over and over, you just don't look this sick. Like your your lungs look, you know, horrible, but you don't look this sick. I mean, he's a pretty easygoing guy, so for him, like it just it wasn't it didn't go with the 38 year old and with my 15 years of nursing experience, I'd never seen anything like this, Oh wow. um, you know, and then to be told by the doctors, well, if he does have it, you know, we'll just monitor symptoms. But you know, when I started researching, finding information, like something to help his treatment, like I had to, I had to go into ER chat rooms. Um, I'm a part of ICU and ER. Mm-hmm. And so we actually were sharing information in these chat rooms with what's working in COVID. So during that time, it's when it was in, um, Portland, Um, and all those different places. And so ER doctors were sharing like the tests to run and everything. So I was then sharing that with the Cleveland Clinic doctors on what I was finding. So there were a lot of, I fired his nurse, um, then had to apologize. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Because they they escorted me out of the hospital the day that he was um, sent up to ICU. I'm like, I'm not leaving you. And there was such chaos. And I looked at him that day and I'm like, Listen, it's almost midnight. I'm gonna go home. I'm gonna get some things situated. You know, they couldn't tell me, should we quarantine the kids? Shouldn't we? I'm like, I'm quarantining everybody just to be sure. Um, and I didn't realize that I wouldn't see him for 18 days. I literally was like, bye, babe, I love you. Um, and then I was escorted out of the hospital by a nurse and security. Um, and then I was called and told I wasn't allowed to come back to the hospital. Um, I wasn't allowed anywhere near the hospital. I had to stay at home. Then the health department called. So like it was when he passed out in the stat care, I went into nurse mode of coping. Like I'm I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure out what's doing. And I wasn't, I wasn't dealing with what was actually going on. I was still in denial. Mm-hmm. So yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, for the most part, when I was first admitted, um, you know, there wasn't, from my standpoint, a whole lot going on. Um, I watched a lot of TV, got caught up on a lot of emails. Um, and it wasn't until around March 15th where, you know, as, as they're watching my oxygen numbers, they're noticing the pattern that it just continues to go down and it's not getting any better. Um, it gets to the point, you know, as we're going into the weekend that I am just out of consciousness completely. Um, and I vaguely remember them asking me if I would allow them to intubate me. Um, and I must have said yes, uh, but I wasn't conscious enough to give them a concrete answer. They ended up calling her and checking with her to make sure it was okay also.
4: Yeah. And the ICU manager was, It's we're such a smaller community and that I work for them. The ICU manager called me and I mean, she, these nurses were amazing just from start to finish. Like just for them, like I'm a nurse. It was like, they would cry with me. Um, They're like, it could be our husband. So like the compassion that was there for us was just amazing. So the nurse manager called me and she's like, listen, you're going to get a phone call. I'm working with the health department. How fast can you get up here? Um, And so because I told him, I'm like, I don't, I have a badge. I will get in. Like if you're, if you're going to intubate my husband, I'm going to be there. I'm fully prepared for PPE. And they were, the health department was gracious. I was already, because I was a clinic employee, they made the allowance for me to go up there and sit with him. And he was already intubated. I'll never forget putting an N95 mask on, having goggles full PPE, stuffing toilet paper up my nose just to keep it from running because I was crying and weeping, like just sitting there with him and just going, this can't be real. And the nurses looked at me and they, they would cry with me. They're like, I mean, they're doing the same thing because I, I just kept saying, I just want to wake up. I just want to wake up. Like, this can't be happening. He's never been sick. And so, like, the reality of where we were kind of transferred from him to him fighting for his life to, okay, I now, for the first time, I'm 35 years old. I may be a widow. I've got three kids at home. I don't know what to do. The doctors are, you know, they don't know what to do. I could see the fear, and I'm a medical professional. So, just knowing nobody has a clue um, and then at that moment i remembered what i was taught i remembered that i come from four generation of preachers kids i remembered that i have praying mamas and praying grandmothers i remembered who my father was and i just began to pray i threw on worship music i called his parents and like i need you to understand the severity and i showed them their his him on a ventilator and i'm like i need you to understand We are in a very serious place. I am not nurse anymore. I'm just the wife right now and I need you to pray. Um, And so we just began to pray. Like I had five hours with him in that room and from top to bottom, I just prayed over his head, like every single area of his body that I knew was going to be attacked. I just began to pray over it and speak, you know, God's healing over his body. Um, And when I was escorted out um, on that on March 15th, Technically, the 16th at 4.30 in the morning, the first thing I did when I got in my car is I called my mom and I just began to cry. I'm like, I need you to pray. I just need you to pray. I want my husband back. And my mom, being the woman of God that she is, she said, Cassie, I truly believe God is elevating you and Nick. I believe, I don't know how, but I believe that he's in that moment. That wasn't what I wanted to hear. And I told her, I said, mom, I don't care if God elevates anything. I just want my husband back. Get chills. Mm. And so I just began to just, my mom prayed for me and I called and I told her, I said, you call any Bible believing prayer warrior person, you know, I don't care how crazy they are. Like if they believe that God can heal, I want them praying for my husband. And so at 4.30 till six in the morning, I was calling everybody that I knew. Saying, will you pray for my husband? This is where we are. The doctors don't know what to do. Will you pray for him? Will you pray for him? And the global church, like the first time in our lives, I think the global church just came around us and people were bringing us meals, you know, because I couldn't leave the house. At that point, I was locked in. Um, I wasn't going anywhere. He had COVID. You know, we're in a very serious situation. The girls got to quarantine at a 90 acre farm, so they were completely happy as happy as you can be. Um, And I mean, we just began to pray. Um, And so the 16th, they called me because he's completely out. He's on a paralytic. He, I mean, he's not there at that point. They have him in in an induced coma. His lungs are completely gone. There's no breathing at all on him. He's mechanically ventilated. And it was a day of silence. They called me first thing in the morning on Monday. And they just said, we cannot give you hope. This is where we are what do you want done if he dies? What do you want done if he codes? And I'm like, you bring him back to me. He is my best friend. Like, I don't care what you have to do. I don't care if you have to move heaven and hell itself. You bring him back to me. And of course, on the other end, I could feel they were there with me because they understood like, I'm a nurse. This is my husband. This is my best friend. Like, These are the things. And so they're like, we're going to do the best we can. This is the best place for him, but we cannot give you hope right now. So at that morning at 6am, you know, I'm, I'm just utterly devastated. I'm just in just this place. He's fighting for his life. I'm just going, Jesus, I don't know what to do. I laid, you know, on the couch and God just began to remind me. He's like, Cassie, I've been with you this whole way. I've been with you and Nick this whole way. What at the stat care, what they would have given him would have killed him. Um, if they would have given him the steroids and the antibiotics and sent him home, it would have activated the COVID even more. So then they got him in union, which was a Cleveland clinic hospital and shipped him straight up to the main campus Cleveland clinic, which is the best hospital, you know, to be at. And so all these doctors are working and God just reminded me of his goodness. So at 2 PM on the 16th, they called and they said, Hey, guess what? His lungs are now 60% functioning. So he went from 100% not functioning. And I truly believe, like, okay, God, you are working. The global church is praying. Like, people were calling me from Sweden, giving me prophetic words. Like, just um, one girl called, and um, she's like, hey, I'm going to send you this. This is from my friend in Seattle. She doesn't know you. I just told her to pray, and this is what she said. And it was, you know, in the same way that Lazarus lived, you know, Nick is going to live. God is going to use him for his glory. It's going to be God's name. That's going to get out there and stuff. And so I'm like, okay, that's mine. I I believe in, you know, more than one. And then Nick's cousin called me and he's like, Cassie, I was reading about Lazarus today. And I just heard the word say in the same way that I love Lazarus. I love Nicholas and he will live. And so that was the second. And then my daughter came home and she's like, and she's 12. She's like, mom, as we're putting away groceries, She's like, I believe that if God could heal that one guy and raise him from the dead, that he can heal daddy. And I'm like, wait, what one guy? I wanted her to say it. Like, what one guy? And so God was on my end. He was just settling in. This is who you are. This is your identity. This is what it means to be a part of the church. This is what it means to be my daughter. So that's kind of what was on while he was sleeping. uh,
3: You know, on March 16th then is when they removed me off the paralytic and allowed me to kind of come out of the coma. And so I was in a situation where I'm I'm waking up and I'm in a completely different place now. I've been transported to main campus and, you know, the nurses right away, they recognized that I was coming out of the coma and they come into the room to tell me you know where I'm at and how I got there and what's going on Uh, but they really don't explain kind of what my status is at this point I mean and I understand now looking back they didn't want me to be in that situation be afraid or or worried about what was happening so they weren't feeding me a lot of the details about my status Um, they were giving it more to her Um, so for my end you know I'm laying in an ICU isolation room in Cleveland on a ventilator and that's That's all the status I really have about my, you know, where I'm at. Um, So, you know, it was pretty uneventful. There's not a whole lot you can do in an ICU isolation room other than watch TV. And so, you know, there's not a lot happened. They did have me on quite a number of medications. And so um, I did not get a lot of sleep while I was in the ICU. You know, that first night being out of the coma, having the drugs in me, I had a tremendous amount of hallucinations. Um, just some crazy stuff, stuff that I haven't even told people, um, just because they would think I was on something, which I, I kind of was. So, um, <laughs> I hope you and it was, yeah, well, and it was very, I mean, some of it was semi traumatic. I mean, there was one point where I just felt like they had taken me and moved me into someplace other than a hospital, like that they were harvesting organs. And I remember one night I, I even texted her. In a, in a panic, like, I don't think I'm at the Cleveland Clinic. I think they have moved me and something is seriously going wrong here. Um, I even, you know, I'm pulling up the GPS on my phone to see where my phone is telling me I'm at. Um, and so, you know, those were the types of hallucinations that I dealt with um, and it was, all the time. At one point, I, you know, experienced ICU delirium and having my my days and my nights mixed up and not really knowing what time of day it was. And so, some of these dreams and things, I don't even know if they were at night. They could have been in the middle of the day. So, uh, so you know, that kind of continued on my entire stay at the ICU, uh, March seventeenth. Um, the doctors discovered I had a secondary infection. I picked up RSV, which is a common infection, usually in kids, a respiratory infection. Um, and so things weren't going well. Um, they you know, still weren't really communicating to me other than I knew I wasn't feeling the greatest. Um, there was a little bit of information she would communicate to me about blood pressure and things like that, not being regulated. And so I, I was at least coherent enough. Uh, that the nurses did provide me with a stack of paper and a pen. so I could at least communicate with the nursing staff and the doctor' staff by writing notes and, and I would do that often I would you know I would write a lot of thank you notes and give them to them as they were coming in because I will say this was a very humbling experience. Um, you know when you're in a situation where you can't even clean up after yourself, you know we, we take things like going to the restroom and, and being able to do those bodily functions. For granted, and when you're in a situation like that where you can't even do that on your own, um, it, it's it's very humbling. And so the other nice thing is being out of uh, the coma and kind of being with it. My ICU nurse had reached out to my wife um, and, and told her, you know, he's to the point where if you get him his phone, if you bring the phone to Cleveland, we will give it to him. And so I, you know, I would video chat with them. I would spend a lot of time video chatting with my wife, with my parents, with my brother and sister-in-law. Um, we, we would use Facebook Messenger a lot and actually group chat. and All of us be in the chat at the same time. And so that's kind of how I spent my days uh, and my nights. You know, the nights were rough because they're all sleeping. I can't really communicate with them. Um, and so, you know, it would be hit or miss of, you know, finding something to do, something to watch on TV or kind of dozing off and, and dealing with hallucinations and visions. And, you know, uh, it, it was a it was a pretty horrific part of my stay at the, at the clinic. And, you know, it's not something I had ever been equipped to deal with. Um, i you know, never really had issues with mental health until this point. Um, being in the ICU and, and seeing some of the things I saw and, and experiencing those things, I hit a point where I was um, very depressed and had a lot of anxiety. Um, two, two emotions that up until this point, I didn't really know. Um, And so I had struggled at one point. I now have this paper and pen and I'm feeling these emotions and I don't know what the outcome of this is going to be. And I contemplated at that point, just writing a note to the nursing staff, asking them to shut off the family. Um, I didn't know if I had the capacity to continue going. It was just a struggle. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the turning point for me. I had broken down at that point and really cried out to God. And I want to pause here for a second, because I want to just give you a little bit of background as to what my walk with God looked like before this. And I, I've been a Christian all my life. My dad is a pastor, but probably like many other people who sit in church today, I don't know that I took it seriously. I've read the Bible. I can quote scripture, but I never really felt like I had an intimate relationship with God or experienced Him in such a way as I did through this and it was through that prayer and crying out at this point that I felt overwhelming peace and I can't even explain it to this day I'm laying in an ICU room and I just have this peace flow all over me and I hear him say as verbally as I'm talking to you that I have got you I am using these nurses and doctors to take care of you and I knew within myself at that point that something was going to happen. I had a new uh, outlook on this whole situation. The other thing is after, after this had occurred, my wife had actually sent a couple of pictures and a note that the ICU nurse had put on the wall. And so, you know, as I'm opening my eyes from this prayer, I look up at the wall and I see the pictures of my two daughters and our wedding photo. And the note that she had wrote, the very last line of our of that note said, our latter days will be greater. And so I was just overwhelmed with joy. I had so much peace at this point. Um, I, I knew that I had to fight. I had to do whatever I could within me to do, uh, to get past this and, you know, leave it up to God to do the rest. And so, you know, the days after that were long, uh, continue to deal with the visions and the hallucinations but there were other things that occurred like you know for example when you're on a ventilator you can't drink or eat and so you've got a tube hanging in your mouth your mouth is open all the time you can't even close your mouth and there's a point where i just began to think i would love a drink of water or even some ice and you know god reminded me in that moment you've taken something as simple as a drink of water for granted in life And I was overwhelmed by all of the things, you know, things just started to come to mind of what I've taken for granted, things that we do every single day that we don't even give two thoughts about. And now all of a sudden, I'm laying here completely helpless, can't feed myself, can't even get a glass of water. You know, that I would say gratitude is one theme throughout this whole thing. This has given me a whole new outlook on life. Um, I even tell people I don't, I'm not upset that I went through this. Um, I thank God that I went through it and that he has turned this into what it has turned into. I, you know, I look at this as a blessing at this point. So, you know, the the very next day, March 19th, the doctors would communicate with me um, through, we had, you know, a glass door and glass windows. It was an isolation room. So you could see through to the medical staff and what was going on. Um, But you were, you know, you had a glass wall essentially between you and them. And they very seldom come into my room. As a matter of fact, doctors would never come they would just send the nursing staff and the nursing staff, um, you know, they tried to come in as little as possible because at that time there was the potential for a shortage of PPE. So they were trying to conserve as much as possible. So in, instead, uh, as the doctors did rounds in the morning, they would write letters on the, the glass window um, and they would write my goals and what they wanted me to try and accomplish. And that morning, the doctor wrote, we will get you home. Um, and that was just kind of confirmation as to what was going on. And so I began to, you know, try and work towards my goals. They'd asked me to take deeper breaths, move my hands and feet, and keep blood flowing and, and things like that. So I would spend time just focusing on breathing and making sure I was getting all the air into my lungs and all the air out of my lungs and making sure my hands and my feet were moving and And so unfortunately, uh, you know, I had this new energy, um, but my body wasn't cooperating. And so um, that day also my hemoglobin dropped and I was actually headed towards a cytokine storm. And unfortunately, if you've watched the news about COVID-19, the cytokine storm is kind of the icing on the cake. Once patients go into a cytokine storm, their body takes over the inflammatory response in their body. Just kind of forces them into um, death. And so things weren't looking good at that point. But I will say, you know, they continued to treat my symptoms. uh, They continued to keep Cassie up to date on things. um, And that eventually did pan out. Um, I am fortunate that, you know, since I was the very first COVID 19 patient for Cleveland Clinic, um, they spent a lot of time trying a lot of different things on me. Mm -hmm. Um, I was in a clinical trial, I was the first person to get randesivir. And the last person to get randesivir because uh, the, the pharmaceutical company only allowed one person to get the drug. And uh, after that, the Cleveland Clinic had to actually sign up to be in a Cleveland uh, clinical trial and get people to authorize it and that kind of thing. So you know, I was on all the drugs they talk about, randesivir, hydrochloroquine, z Um I actually, I've since looked at my 200-page medical
4: chart since being
3: out of the hospital and. I had to stop because I'm like, this, this scares me just like, reading
4: it. Don't read it, babe. I got this. Like, I know what I'm looking at. I know what I'm reading. Like I got this. I mean, when you, when you look at everything and when they would call me and say, um, I mean, I would be, I felt bad for them because I was like a dog on a boat. I'm like, you tell me about this. You tell me about this. You tell me about this. Okay. What about this number? This was what it was yesterday. And, um, they're like, you're a nurse. Are you? Yes. I, I think, I think we would figure this out, but I would use it as my prayer list. So when they told me that day, like he's got his hemoglobin's 8.1, I'm like, what do you mean it's 8.1? Where is he bleeding? Is it a part of, you know, the cell lysis? What's going on here? And they're like, we don't know. And I'm like, well, I know somebody who knows. So I would just text it out, pray over his hemoglobin. And then by the end of the day, his hemoglobin was back up to 11. Mm. Like, I mean, I would just use it as a prayer list. We would specifically pray over every single body part over him. And I'm like, Jesus, you made this so I can call out your healing in this.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, if you think about it, you know, all of this started happening before COVID-19 was really a thing. I mean, it wasn't even on our radar. Um, And so I'm now, you know, we're day six, day seven in the ICU and I'm starting to see on the news, it's starting to make an impact. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it's definitely hit the United States. There are people dying from it. And so, you know, it definitely took some God because at that point when you're seeing all this death on TV, um, it, it can have an impact on you. And so I had kind of made it a concerted effort not to watch TV at that point. It was on every single channel. And so, um, I was fortunate when she brought me, uh, my phone, they also brought my iPad so I could watch Netflix and, you know, all Hulu and all those other things to kind of keep my mind off of the news. And, and between that and the video chatting with my family, I kept, kept rather in, entertained. So, uh, so, uh, March 19th, um, through the 21st was kind of, you know, status quo, ups and downs medically. Um, And then I really struggled with sleep the whole time I was there, Um, especially with the dreams and everything. I just, it was hard when I did get to sleep, I didn't want to stay asleep. And so I had gotten to the point where I was just exhausted. Um, And I had asked the nurse if there was any way that she could get a doctor's order for some type of medication to help Mm me sleep. Uh, Because between the dreams and the exhaustion, the the ventilator was really starting to irritate my throat at this point. I was doing a lot of coughing. and It was just very irritating. And so I needed something to sleep, which is out of my personality. I typically try not to take medications for anything. I'll just kind of, you know, struggle through it. But I was exhausted. And so, you know, I was extremely happy. My afternoon nurse came in. She said, the doctor ordered a, a medication to help you sleep. When the 10 p.m. nurse comes in, she's going to administer it. So I'm like, right on. I'm going to finally get a night of sleep, uh, which could not be farther from <laughs> the truth. Oh, no. Unfortunately, 10 o'clock rolled around, and um, it was a rough night in the ICU, so my nurse did not make it in my room at the beginning of her shift. Um, I remember calling her uh, on the call button, and she's like, I'm busy right now. I'll get to you. And and uh, so she did finally come in. It was probably... 1130 30, 12 o'clock at night, and I still hadn't had the sleeping medication. And so she went ahead and gave me the sleeping medication. I stayed awake for a little bit longer. Um, and then I had another one of my dreams. Um, and these dreams were uh, just to give you an idea, you know, one of my dreams that was reoccurring throughout the week was that they put me in this room and then forgot about me for hours. And I could see through the glass window and I could see a lobby of what I thought was a hospital and that people were moving back and forth and that I was pounding on the door and nobody was responding to me. And I mean, it, it was so bad this night that I, I really was starting to believe that it was happening. Mm-hmm. And I started thrashing around the bed. Um, I started to kind of try and pull on the cables and things. And I I'd finally fallen asleep and I'm not even sure what time I had fallen asleep. And I remember being in pitch black. And all of a sudden, I hear a voice say to me, get out of bed, you will not die here. And when I woke up, I was sitting straight up in the bed, and the ventilator tube was half hanging out of my mouth. Hmm. And I could see out the ICU door, the entire nursing staff was looking at me in absolute horror as to what was going on. And my nurse that night runs into my room and asks me what happened. And I have a tube half hanging out of my mouth. I shrug my shoulders because I am not sure how we got here myself. And I remember a couple other nurses ran in, which was very unlikely. You never had more than one medical person in your room at a time. And they're just trying to figure out what's going on and how this tube got out of my mouth and what the next steps are. Um, They typically don't extubate people on the weekend because there's a shortage of staff. And here it is. It's the middle of the night. It's a Sunday. They are short-staffed, and I have a tube hanging out of my mouth. And so um, they went ahead and put me back under and completed extubation. Removed my feeding tube, removed the ventilator tube. um, And I remember coming out of um, them putting me under, and I am now breathing on my own. And the nurse notices that I'm awake. So she comes in, and we're kind of talking through what happened. And she's like, I was just in your room a few minutes before that happened. And she's like, you were sleeping. And so she still has no idea what happened. And so I, you know, my first question was, well, what's next? Like, is this safe? Should I not have a tube crammed down my throat? Uh, And she's like, well, we really don't know. We're going to let you go for a couple hours and monitor you and see what happens. And from that point on, I was never put back on a ventilator. Um, As a matter of fact, I took the voice that told me to get out of bed so seriously that four hours after being extubated, I was sitting in a recliner and they had me a hospital lunch and I'm eating a full normal lunch, Um, which today I am told by several medical professionals that that's not normal.
4: No. And he went from, and I mean, when he called me and um, he normally, I'd see this much of his head because normally his hands would just get really tired. And so most of the time I would just, I would read his face because he couldn't talk and I would just read whatever his forehead looked like was where his mood was. If it was relaxed, he was okay. If it was crinkled, like, so I would talk based on where his mood was. So every day I'd start with, this is the scripture somebody said us. So this is what we're going to stand on today. And he pulls it down and starts talking and I start bawling. I like drop to the floor and begin to just weep. Um, and every day from the 19th on, I was saying, it's a good day for a miracle. It's a good day. Like I would just proclaim it's a good day for a miracle. And so on the 20, what, 23rd, no 22nd, like it was the miracle day. And so I'm like, show me your screen. Cause that'd be the one thing he'd do for me is he'd show me where his screen was for his oxygen, his pulse, everything, his blood pressure. And I hadn't seen numbers that high since, um, before he went into the hospital, like he was running 97% on five liters of oxygen. Through a nasal cannula. Like, that's, I mean, he was running 89, 90% on the ventilator as they were adjusting stuff. And so, just just that, and then he's up, like, he's just on fire for God. Like, I've never seen.
3: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I I, I planned it on purpose. So, I had the camera tablet so that you could only see from my eyes up. And, you know, so when we first connect, I don't say a word. So, she thinks, you know, status quo, still on the ventilator. Um, and so as, as we're in this video chat, I lower the camera so she can see I now have no ventilator tube. And I remember telling her, Jesus is king. Amen. And overwhelmed by his love, that I begin to tell her that I just want to preach his news, his good news, and proclaim that as long as his breath is in my lungs, I'm going to tell everybody about this story and make sure that they are aware that God is a very real God that he loves us more than we could ever imagine, and that he is there to help us in our times of need. And so that's kind of why, you know, I continue to do things like this. Um, I will say that, you know, prior to leaving the ICU, it was very important to me to thank the nursing staff. You know, I was overwhelmed with just how kind they were. And in a situation where I have no family that I can physically touch, they become your family. And there were times, even though they're not supposed to be in my room, there were times, you know, where they would talk to me and and we would, I would write notes and some of them were silly and I would make the doctors laugh. And um, so, you know, before I left the ICU, I thought it was very important to thank them. And so I had wrote uh, kind of a two paragraph thank you note. And just before we left the ICU, uh, my nurse came in and I said, I would really love to put this message on the glass window. So that everybody can see it, but I don't have the strength to stand up there and write it. And so I gave her my iPad and uh, she wrote the entire two paragraphs on that ICU window. And it was it was moving to me because I could actually see through the window while she was writing it. And the ICU staff were lined up on the ice other side of the door just crying. And so, you know, as she gets done writing that letter and they pack me up and they wheel me out of the ICU into A step-down room Uh, and you know this once I got into the step-down room it was pretty much take care of myself because uh, at that point there was very limited PPE the nurses would only come in my room maybe two or three times a day and so the nursing staff would call me on my cell phone and kind of talk me through you know what are your symptoms Um, if they started an IV they would call me to tell me how to stop the IV uh, even my doctors, when they did rounds in the morning, they would either video chat with me or they would call me on the phone. And so that's kind of how I spent my, you know, I out of ICU time. Um, I will say, though, the first day out of ICU, I did get a phone call from the Cleveland Clinic PR marketing department. Um, and, you know, it, it was a very nice lady. She's like, I've got to talk to you about a problem. She's like, somebody took a picture of your note on the icu glass window and it's become viral and she's like i have nbc and abc and cbs calling me and she's like i need to talk through that with you and see how you want to handle this do you want us to be the go-between are you okay with news media calling you And you know at first i was a little overwhelmed i wasn't anticipating any of that i mean i just really wanted to thank my staff for the amazing work they did uh in taking care of me and so um, I told the Cleveland Clinic, I'd rather you guys be the go-between. Uh, you can filter out the inquiries. She asked if I would shoot a, a video for the Cleveland Clinic, which I agreed to and I shot, and um, they released it on all of their social media. Um, and so that's kind of how I spent the days out of ICU while I was still in the hospital. They weren't willing to release me yet. Um, since I was the very first patient, they kept me another seven days just under observation. Um, I did struggle with oxygen still. Um, I never got above 89 even while I was in the hospital. And so it got to the point where I was on five liters and two liters here and there throughout my, my week's stay. And so between that and, and video chat and watching TV, I did uh, quite a bit of interviews. And then it, it was just kind of pressed upon me. You know, if, if I'm serious about spreading God's word in this story, then the Cleveland Clinic is not a big enough platform. And so I had allowed them to kind of get my contact information out there. Um, And so since then, I've had the pleasure of doing interviews with Fox News and and Fox uh, Family and Friends and Dr. Oz and um, just these nationally syndicated shows. And I've had the pleasure of of telling people, you know, this, the the people who took care of me, it was through God's divine intervention um, that they knew what to do and how to do it. That saved my life, and I think that's the one thing people struggle with: is you know uh, they don't necessarily think God's blessings can come through people sometimes, and you know I absolutely think they do. Um, you know I think He gave us the knowledge of medicine and of human bodies to use that then for His purpose, and so uh, that's that's kind of how I ended up. Uh, I ended up getting dismissed on March twenty seventh. Back home, so my wife came up and picked me up at the Cleveland Clinic, and we left and cried all the way home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: and it was funny because, like, we literally—I told him—I said I feel like it has just been one pivot after the other, after the other, after the other, because he was the fifth in Ohio that was diagnosed. You know, he was the fifth one, the first Cleveland Clinic patient. Like we literally were navigating new waters and the new waters. And then he comes out and everybody wants to talk to him. Everybody wants to see his story. And I mean, I've been, I've known him since I was nine. I told him I loved him when I was nine, just so you know, took 10 years to wear him down. <laughs> Ten. But he's a, he's a background guy. He enjoys being in the background. He enjoys, he doesn't like the spotlight. It's always been his personality. So that he said, that's why he married me because I'm a talker. So You know, in order to and I watched his personality just kind of change and him tell people about, you know, it didn't matter if it the Washington Post or, you know, ET or People magazine, like it didn't matter. He was telling them, you know, I heard a voice, like God's love, like his story never changed based on who he talked to. And I mean, just to know this man, to be married to him, to know his personality, to watch what God did in this moment and how it's changed him, like just I mean, he was great before, but just even more so, like just more gratitude, more, I mean, more grounded, more rooted. Like it's, it's a beautiful blessing.
0: What does that look like with your kids?
4: Oh, they tell everybody Jesus, you know, pulled the tube out of daddy's mouth. (laughs) Like like it's a, uh, and then they were, you know, they were, it was a ride for them too. So all of a sudden, you know, daddy's feeling better. Like, you know, all of that, they took on their own role of like, we have to help. So when they do the video chats, they'd be like, we have to keep daddy smiling. We have to keep daddy, you know, just distracted. Like, so they would do silly things. Like they just, they became, I mean, they changed as children. They went from just being normal little girls who were just being taken from one place to the next to, you know, doing their own life to more of an intricate part of the family. And this is, This is what we have to do as a family. I think that's one thing that's happened with us is it's been, you know, Nick, Nick isn't a workaholic anymore. I am not in my own little world. Like, not that we were not, you know, together before, but everybody was kind of in their own place. And what this has done for us is it's allowed us to come together as a family. Wow. Um, Really just, you know, we are team Brown. This is what we do as a family. So we're going to do chores together. We're going to do, you know, things that are going to help us as a family remain strong. And so like, that's one thing that they've just matured a lot in that area. They told me last night, they're mature girls.
2: So I love that. Nick, one of, I wanted to ask you, cause I caught that you said I, I was a workaholic. And so I, I wanted to, you know, ask, are you, do you still consider yourself a workaholic? But also how are you feeling physically today? So, so many months out.
3: Yeah. So uh, to kind of answer the workaholic, I mean, I, I'm a workaholic in all aspects of my life. I, you know, there are times where I would work 60, 70 hours a week and then still do 20 hours of work at our church doing podcasts and editing video. And um, I'd kind of gotten burnt out on all of that and took a a year off from church. And so that a year off from church actually precedes this whole thing. I will say, I mean, I've gotten a a new um, energy. I'm, I'm, helping my parents get their sound system put back together and integrate more technology into what they're doing. And I'm feeling energy around that, but i had gotten very burned out on church. And so, Mm -hmm. um, I, I wouldn't say I walked away from God, but it was not the center of my life. And so now I I kind of, I'm back to where I, you know, I have talents and I feel like I have to use them. Um, my goal now though is just to use them in moderation and not get burned out and not work 70 hours a week at my day job. Right. And then how I'm feeling now, um, today I feel a million times better. Um, I still struggle with oxygen at night while Mm -hmm. I'm sleeping. So I still have five liters of oxygen while I sleep. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how effective it is because it falls off most of the time at night. Um, And then I have a blood clot in my leg that I'm still on blood thinners for, uh, for probably about another six months, they're thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just some weird issues here and there, like I still get headaches once in a while. Um, And they're not horrible headaches. They're just this minor, I can deal with them without any type of medication, Uh, but they'll last eight, 10 hours a day. Um, And then just because of being in the ICU and all the medications, there's still occasionally some memory issues. I'll be talking and just a simple word that I want to say won't come to mind and I'll struggle with that. Uh, But, you know, that's that's minor. It's better than the alternative.
4: Uh, Absolutely.
0: Cassie, what about you? What's, what's been the one, I guess, drastic change in your faith from before till now? What's the one thing God has shown you?
4: Um, I think for us, it was, I believe when God heals, he heals on many different levels. So it's not just like Nick's healed, but like we both were so burnt out on religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually attending his parents' church when it's just a small hole in the wall church with six widows. And I was just resting because we just overworked ourselves in church. It became a serve mentality. And so it became a performance works-based, you know, theology. And so God was really just kind of aligning. And seeing before this, I kind of just felt like because we left that church, we lost a lot of community. And so I was really feeling very much like, okay, God, like your community doesn't love me. So what's the purpose of church? Like they don't love us. They're not here for us anymore. So what's the purpose of church? So in this, like it was in the most isolating season of our lives, like we can't see each other. Nobody can come into my house. Like I am physically alone. He's physically alone. I have never felt first the tangible love of God so much in that moment. And two, just the global church community, people that I didn't know showing up and bringing me meals, texting me, what can I do for you? How can I help you? What can I pray for you? And I mean, this was before, you know, the news or anything. So they weren't trying to get anything out of it. It was literally there is a need and one of our sisters in Christ and their family is in need and we want to show up. And it just kind of healed for me um, the love for the church again, because that was something that was just, it wasn't there. And I I feel like that's one thing over and over. When I look back um, in my journal during that time, it was just again and again, the global church community. I feel God's love through his people. It's the same thing with Nick. He felt it through the nurses. I felt it through God's God's community.
0: Mm-hmm. Katie told us we had to ask this one question, and then we'll oh, yeah. <laughs> we can wrap it up. She with Katie, who's not with us, was very curious if you have kept in touch with your caregivers.
3: Actually, it's it's funny you ask. So there were two caregivers that uh, two nurses at the Cleveland Clinic that really stuck out. Uh, there were I, I remember all of them, but the problem in this situation is they're masked up. You can't really see their faces. So, and then when you've got that many medications in you, and you're already having issues remembering things, I can't remember all their names. Um, I would recognize them by the sound of their voice. Mm-hmm. And so, there were two, however, that they made it a point. Um, they spent extra time with me. They even visited me after um, I had come out of the ICU. Um, I actually had one, one little nurse, she, was, um, she wrote me a card and gave me some cookies when I got into the step-down unit, um, and we ended up becoming Facebook friends, and we still follow each other and like each other's stuff on Facebook, but um, yeah, the, those two, um, and then the, the doctor staff, I mean, my infectious disease doctor was very invested in me. Um, he gave me his personal cell phone number, and we would text, um, even when I was out of the ICU, uh, he even ended up um, having a conference like the Tuesday or Thursday or Tuesday or Wednesday that I was out of ICU. And he messaged me and he's like, is there any way you would record like a two minute video that I could show at my conference? And so I was like all messy hair, been in the hospital for 18 days. I'm like, Long beard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yes. So I recorded that and, um, you know, he, uh, he was just a, such a, such a gentle man and, you know, I, he had made a couple of comments about, you know, he didn't really know what caused me to come out of this, um, but he made some comments that I have an amazing family um, and that prayers worked. And so I, uh, just a very humble guy. and I appreciate the medical staff and, you know, they, God definitely lined up the folks who took care of me. How can
2: we pray for you guys? That-
3: yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, continued healing. I still got a few things I'd like mm-hmm. to have uh, resolved um uh, you know i believe it's going to happen in his time um and then obviously whatever the future looks like i mean there's a reason this happened um there's a bigger plan here that has not been fully revealed to us and so i think my thing is uh i want to be able to see whatever it is he has for us and be able to have the courage to walk through those doors um uh, cuz this is not me uh you know no. when i'm on national tv that was completely out of my comfort zone i am an it guy i sit in an office and I look at a screen all day and deal with people on the phone. So um, I would say, you know, that's probably, you know, I know he's going to push me and that's good. I'm fine with being stretched, but I definitely would ask for that courage to, to walk through those doors.
4: I can just tell you that I knew God's presence was tangible in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sorrow. Like when you're a Christian, you have access. The Bible says, you know, He blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so, like, I took that very seriously during this—that God was going to be with us through all of this. That His promise wasn't that everything would be perfect. His promise was witness. And so, having Him with us was just something that I, I really just stood on and believed. And then, you know, not being able to communicate a lot till afterwards, and then hearing the same things that God was showing me, He was showing Nick. Like, and we couldn't communicate. So, like, the fact that this was going on, God would say, "Write your latter days will be greater," and give him a note with a picture of the girls. I didn't know that that would be such a turning point for Mm -hmm. him. Like the Lord speaking and saying, do this. And I, I'd be obedient. And then, you know, he would speak using whatever I'd sent up or, you know, whatever would happen. So, I mean, God's presence has just been just with us and just that, you know, we really want to see his kingdom come.
1: What a story to kick off the season with. I mean, I just am so appreciative to Nick and Cassie for taking the time to share their story with us. Mm-hmm. And especially after coming off of 40 days of prayer and rest and what, what <laughs> I mean, an impact prayer was on their life. I loved mm-hmm. when she said, you know, I was no longer a nurse. I was a wife yeah. and I remembered what I was taught and I remembered my father. And that's when she began just really praying over every um, every body part, she said. (laughs) And, and it just was a reminder to me of the importance of prayer in this time of our world of just, Mm -hmm. we have got to be calling out to our father and claiming that he hears us. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And giving up, giving up control, this false sense of control. Absolutely. Yeah. God really spoke that to me last week. And if y'all follow us on Instagram, I actually did an Insta story about it of, we can sit and be in anxiety and hold this grip of control over whether or not our kids go back to school or whether or not we, you know, all these things that are being so heavily debated right now. And Mm -hmm. God's like, hey, you're not in control, so you can choose (laughs) to hold on to it, but there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. And, And she found herself in that place of realizing there was nothing she could do other than going to the ward mm-hmm.
2: Well, and it really spoke to me because one of the first things that Nick said was, you know, I was a workaholic. Mm-hmm. I, I was a workaholic. <laughs> and then how Cassie at the end talked about their family coming together. She said, you know what, we're not, we were four individual people living in a house and, and all of this caused us to come together as, you know, team Brown, team family, and, and that was very compelling mm-hmm. to me a, as far as what this did to their family and their relationship with each other. Yeah.
0: And, you know, another place where God just showed up was when she got three different words mm-hmm. from people all around the world speaking life over him and saying that he was not going to die there. And, you know, I think sometimes we think we hear the Lord once and we really go, go like, oh, yeah, you know, I don't know. And then you hear something twice, you hear the exact same Mm -hmm. thing, or God gives you the same Bible verse two times in a row or whatever. And, and then you start to pay attention. And by the third time, it's like, Oh, I'm hearing the Lord. Hol- Holy Spirit is speaking loud and clear, mm-hmm. and I am going to take that and run with it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it was such a pretty picture of the global church mm-hmm. as well. That was another theme the that just, that. yeah, that just stood out to me. Mm-hmm. And how you know they they were more about you know relationship with God versus religion, which is what we're all about as well. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I'm so appreciative to to both of them for just taking the time to really sit yeah. for an hour. I know. Us. I
2: know. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, Nick and Cassie's story is is a miracle story. I mean, and if that is not bringing hope today, then I don't know what is. Just to know that God is still in the business of miracles. He can still perform miracles. So whatever you're going through mm-hmm. right now, we do just want to give you hope yes. that God is there with you. He is in the details.
0: Yeah, it's so true. I mean, our goal for this entire season is just hope, encouragement. Mm-hmm. God is so good. You know? Um, So anyways, thank you for joining us today. We're so excited to be back. And follow us online. If you don't already, we're on Facebook and Instagram. at Storytellers Live Podcast. We would love for you to not only subscribe to the podcast, but review. It always is so helpful for other people to find stories when you review our podcast. And right now, I think everybody's looking for a little bit of hope. So thanks for joining us today, and we will be with you again next week. Bye.